Welcome to Real Life, the program that talks about the life of real estate in the Hamptons and beyond. The people, the places, and the things that are the pulse and heartbeat of real estate with your host, broker associate of Sotheby's International Realty, John Christopher. Welcome back to Real Life, and this is your host, John Christopher. It's hard to imagine that we're beginning our 11th year of doing real life. And what better way to start it off than with my next guest, the enlightening, educational, entertaining, and electrifying managing director of Liebet Law, Andrew Lieb. Welcome, Andrew. I just feel overwhelmed with these different acronyms, or not acronyms, um, or terms that you've used for me. And I'm trying to think to myself, how I'm going to be electrifying now, John. You set the stage way too high. You have to stick we your fingers in the outlet. <laughs> well, we have to strive for mediocrity a little here. Like, let's not go too high up there. No, I think it's excellent. You know, you're you're wonderful, actually, when it comes to uh, uh, imparting wisdom and knowledge. So let's, let's talk about some uh, real estate topics, like, for example... SOPs, not SOBs, but standard operating procedures for agencies. Some agencies are requiring photo IDs uh, from uh, customers before doing business with the agency or the agent, and some are not. So, Andrew, give us an overview of what they are and what they mean. I like the way you did SOPs, not SOBs, because a lot of people keep saying SOB while they're doing the SOP. So (laughs) (laughs) that's what I've noticed in our industry. But SOP stands for Standard Operating Procedure. And let me just give you a global overview. Overview: People in real estate brokerage discriminate against buyers and sellers. And the state of New York doesn't like that. And when I say they discriminate against sellers and buyers and buyers and tenants, and they just discriminate. How, how do I know? Because there was an article called Long Island Divided in Newsday, where we found that certain real estate brokers, not me, Newsday, found that certain real estate brokers were steering people based on their race to different communities. And we might, I don't know, think about it like, hey, you're Polish, you should live in Polish town in Riverhead. But that's not really what was happening. Well, instead, what they were saying is, you look like me, you talk like me, you're my type of people, you're white. You shouldn't live there. You won't like the school district there. You won't like that place. Oh, you don't look like me. You don't talk like me. Oh, you want to go there? All right, whatever, we'll go there. So instead of being an overt, Italians live in Little Italy, Jews live in the Little Lower East Side, the way we think about historically, it was more like people were trying to help their tribe, but not trying to help someone else's tribe. And so what happens is that the New York State Senate had hearings about this. Not only did they prosecute people that did wrongs, not only were there cases before the Division of Human Rights and before the Department of State and the Attorney General's office, and I was a part as an attorney for some of these, so I can't get into specific detail, but what I can tell you is that the New York State Legislature, which is the Senate and the Assembly, said, hey, we got to do something about it. So instead of saying, hey, John, You can ask IDs only from people that give you the hippities, which is how we used to do it. Like if John felt like they someone gave him the hippities when he was doing brokerage, he could use a field test. They realize that we have this thing called implicit bias where people that don't look like us or talk like us might subconsciously give us the hippities. And we're going to not overtly or know we're discriminating or intentionally discriminate, but unintentionally, unwillingly discriminate. So they said, what we have to do instead is have a standard procedure where uniformly 
everyone gets treated the same way. It's kind of like when you go to the candy store, the Tootsie Rolls a dollar, no matter who you are, the Tootsie Rolls a dollar. With inflation, it's probably $12. But the Tootsie Rolls, $12. When we dealt with the SOPs though, John, we have three categories the state required a brokerage firm to apply uniformly. You mentioned one of them being IDs. Another one is whether a buyer has to have exclusive buyer's brokerage agreement that being a big one. And the third one was whether a buyer needs to have a pre-approval to see property. So the three, again, were IDs, pre-approval for a mortgage. And as we're going down this line, we need to say, what are we going to do? That's the question. So you said to me, certain brokerages are doing this because the brokerages have the choice. Do we want a pre-approval? Do we want to have exclusive buyer's brokerage agreement? Do we want to require IDs? And different brokers did it different ways, and they now have to advertise on their website and inform their clients about what the ID requirements are. The problem becomes, and I'll go back to you on this, John, you see a seller and they want something different than what your brokerage does. So doesn't the seller get a say? So what do you think we should do if the seller says, hey, you may not require IDs, but it's my house, my castle. If you're bringing someone in my house, shouldn't I see an ID? What do you think they should do on that, John? That's a good question. So how do you address that? Well, I would tell you that the law says that an owner can have a owner-established objective criteria, but the key to the making an objective criteria is, could I make the criteria after I saw the buyers, after I knew who they were? Or would that be overt discrimination that I make a policy based on the people I'm seeing? So what a lot of the companies are doing, if they're smart, that is, is they're writing in their policy. Our policy, for example, is no IDs. Except if the owner tells us in writing prior to showing the property to anyone that this specific property requires IDs. Now, this is not a company standard operating procedure. This is just for 123 ABC Street at this property address. Right. But what happens? Does the uh, seller at 123 ABC Street, does that uh, every time has to ask for identification, a photo ID? Or if it just only if it does it for that one buyer that comes into the house. Isn't that going against the whole idea of this SOP? No, it'd be required for each one. And the buyer wouldn't even be there. What the companies that are are giving the seller the option, which they're supposed to, based on a case called Mancuso v. Douglas Elliman, which gives the seller a right to create non-discriminatory criteria for their property. So the question becomes, to answer your question, is what do we do? The seller would be telling the real estate brokerage firm at the point of getting the listing, here's my criteria. My criteria is no one enters the property, no one or no one gives me an offer unless I see their photo ID. Maybe the seller wants a copy of the ID. Maybe the seller says it has to be a driver's license. But whatever the criteria is, it has to be uniformly applied moving forward. Excellent. Okay. So that explains that. Um now, what about the uh, buyer representation agreement? Do they? Um, you're saying some some agencies say that they want that, and some agencies say no. So what we used to have again is I'm working with a buyer, and they're a little sketchy. I don't like the way they smell. I don't like the way they look. I don't like the way they talk. So I say to them, I'm, I'm a sketchy person. You give me an agreement that says you're going to pay me, but I would never do that with the guy that pulls up in the Bentley and has a, a beautiful spouse and they're, they're the same color as me. They're the same race as me. They're the same religion as me. 
And so what this new rule says is if you want to ask buyers for agreements to pay, these are called buyer's brokerage agreements, you have to ask everyone or ask no one for this. Now, again, what are some companies doing that's smart here? And it is smart. They're saying our uniform policy is we don't need this. However, they're putting hedging. You got to hedge. You know, I wish I hedged this market. My father was hedging this market. He's killing it. Me, on the other hand, broke as a joke. <laughs> but here's the thing. Here's the thing. Hedging, hedging. Here's how they hedge. They say, hey, if you want to see a listing property that's giving below market split to me, because we know that brokers on a selling agent, the person who procures the buyer, generally gets paid a split from the listing agent. But it's hypothetically possible that the listing agent's offering no money on the split. And it's also hypothetically possible they're offering below market, say market's 2 or 3%. Maybe they're offering 1%. We see this on a lot of these for sale by owner sites where they kind of sort of use a broker to list it. The companies are hedging and they're saying, listen, we're not requiring buyer's brokerage agreements, except if you want to see a below market listing. Then we may require it because, and we don't, we, it's not we may require, we are requiring it because we don't work for free. That whole working for free thing, that's not working with this inflation that we were talking about before. We got to get paid. Now, I need to tell you when we're talking about these buyer's brokerage agreements, I think your, your listeners, I think that the Hamptonites out there, the people from the North Fork, and obviously the people tuning in from their living room couch in Arkansas, understand that we're going to see more and more buyer's brokerage agreements moving forward, not to shift topics. But there's class certification in the cases that are going after brokerage firms nationwide for monopolistic practices in splitting disproportionately high fees to buyer's agents. And the result of that case based on consumer groups, and the case is not over yet, but is that we're going to see more and more, you pay your buyer buyer's agent if you're working with a buyer's agent, you pay your seller's agent if you're paying working with a seller's agent, and not as much split. So I think an industry norm is changing, and it's interesting that this SOP requires this conversation now, because I would guess in the next five to 10 years, normative behavior is that we're not going to see these co-brokerage splits as much. And it's going to be a lot more, you work with a buyer's agent, you pay your buyer's agent. You work with a seller's agent, you pay your seller's agent. That's just a prediction based on national case law. Good prediction. You know, it's interesting. I guess it's about 15, 20 years ago when buyer's agents came about. And at the time I had taken a course uh, on that. And the, the one thing that kept coming up was that buyers didn't want to pay the commission at that time. And you, you're saying in the future, in the next five years, that'll be the norm. Well, I'm saying a few different things. I'm saying that there's cases going on that may require that to be the norm. I'm not part of those cases, but I could tell you that the um, people representing the buyers already got class certification. But two more thoughts on that. Number one, the buyer's paying everyone's commission. Let's just put that out there to start off with, because the buyer's fee is what's paying the seller's commission, and the seller's commission is paying the buyer. So if I buy a house for a million dollars and it's a 6% commission, the seller's not dipping into their pocket for that $60,000. They're using the money that I paid as the buyer. So the buyer's always paying the commission. It's just whether it goes direct or indirect. Right. But what I'm saying is that you're going to see listing agents getting not three 6%, but getting 3%, not getting 5%, but getting 2% into the future because what they're suggesting is instead of the listing agent getting both sides of the commission and splitting it with the other side, you're going to see everyone just being responsible for their own commission. 
And the predictability is that the buyer's agent in that scenario, let's assume instead of getting 6%, the listing agent gets 3%. What they're suggesting in that scenario is the buyer's agent's not going to get 3%. They're going to get 1% or 2%. That's the basis of the lawsuit, that the market value of the buyer's agent is disproportionately lower than what they're getting on a co-brokerage split. And if market forces dictated, as you're pointing out, buyers don't want to pay the buyer's agent. If market forces dictated that, we would see that buyers have been overpaying for houses the entire time. I am not telling you I agree or disagree with the lawsuit again. I'm just telling you that there is a law, there's actually two of them, and I believe one of them got class certification recently. And I'm just telling you what consumer trade groups are doing in this conversation. So I think that what happens, John, is that when you go 15 years ago, even before that in California, which is where buyer's agency came from, and you go from don't pay to pay, that's a normative behavior change. And when you go to a normative behavior change, it doesn't happen with a snap of a finger and people are initially reluctant to pay. And people that are not above board are trying to get paid 3% plus the 6% and get to 9% and then no one would want to pay any of it. <laughs> and if you look at NYCR 175.7, it says you can't get paid from more than one party without the consent of your client, which is combating what I just said about the 9%. Right. But in English, very simply, when industries norms change, things become more palatable when things are just done differently. When you go to area, say, how is it done in Sag Harbor? John knows how it's done in Sag Harbor. He's one of the best agents in Sag Harbor. I'm going to ask John. So if I went and said, hey, John, you're one of the best agents in Sag Harbor, and you said back, well, the seller pays their own agent and the buyer pays their own agent. And that's why we don't ask for 6%, but we ask for 3%. Then the normative behavior of buyers would be much more willing to pay all by not necessarily 3%, but maybe one or two, something like Understood. that. Understood. So you're, you're such a wealth of knowledge here. How can someone reach you and partake of that legal human you have? I should just tell them to call you and you should take all the calls moving forward. <laughs> but if someone wants to reach me, that, that, uh, let's do it, my man. Uh, if only I could ethically. Um, if someone wants to reach me about any litigation topic, particularly discrimination or real estate, you can reach me at 631-878-4455. Fantastic. Andrew, it's been a delight having you on the program. This is John Christopher from Real Life Broadcasting in the heart of Southampton the only NPR station on Long Island. And please stay right where you are because we'll be right back after the short break with our next guest, Diane Sachi of Saunders. Welcome back to Real Life, and this is your host, John Christopher. And today I am lucky to have Diane Sachi a top producer at Saunders. Hi, Diane. How are you today? Hi, John. And I want you to know I'm lucky too. I get to talk to you. <laughs> I appreciate that. That's so kind of you. Um, Diane, before we talk about the topic of uh, um, pocket listings and off-market listings and coming soon listings, you heard about those, right, Diane? You bet. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> I have to ask you, how did you, and a lot of people don't know this, but you had a background in mental health. And so how did you go from working in mental health to applying your skills to real estate? Basically, how did you develop a passion for real estate? 
Well, that's a really funny question. I, I, I have a story that some I'll tell you the gory details sometime when we have time for a drink. Okay. Um, but, but the story I can tell on the air is um, I had been working in the field of mental health for about 18 years. Um, and my husband was working on Wall Street. We were coming out here on weekends. We were living in Manhattan and we kind of bumped into each other one, one Friday morning, getting ready to you know go to work and then meet after work and drive out here. And we hadn't talked to each other all week because we've both been working and doing what we do. And I said, hi, my name is Diane. And he laughed and he said, there's something wrong with what we're doing. Um, and that led to a whole series of discussions. Um, my husband's an incredibly talented sculptor. Actually, you can see one of his pieces in the background. Wow. Um, and he, you know, because of um, working on Wall Street, he, he basically traded in the Far East so that he was up late at night. And I had to be at the hospital at seven in the morning. So we had a crazy kind of life. Like ships and passing in the night? Ships passing in the night. Um, I always liked real estate. I had taken my uh, course and taken, gotten my license many years before that. I'd made some investments with friends and done well with it. And we really loved living out here. And we decided that we could do whatever we want with our lives. We could live anywhere in the world. My husband at that time was a British citizen. He's now an American citizen, but he's basically, I mean, he's a Brit. And um, so we could have gone anywhere. And um, we didn't have children. We weren't planning to. And we just decided that we would come out to the Hamptons where we could rehabilitate houses, possibly make some money. He could be a sculptor. We wouldn't have to change our friends. Um, and so we did that and um, never looked back. And it's been, well, probably one of the smartest things I've ever done. Wow. So you think you think you should have started? Uh, I always thought to myself, you know, um, we all have other careers before we got into real estate. Right. And I always thought to myself, I said, you know, if young people are out there, I mean, it's a great career to get into when you're young. Um, real estate. I'm sorry. Real estate or mental yeah, health? Yeah, real estate. Real estate. <laughs> um, you know, it, it not is, mental health necessarily. <laughs> it it is, but I think it's very difficult. People generally back then were buying second homes. They were in their 40s and 50s. They weren't in their 20s. Ah. And I don't think that. 20 year olds or just kids out of college who had would, would have enough credibility to help people, particularly in our community where the I mean, I I learn something from my clients every day. They're much smarter and much more successful than I am and I'll ever be. And they're better at making deals. Um, that's very intimidating when you're 20, when you're you know older and had some other experience. Um, I. I, at that point, I had really good listening skills. I had a number of um, sort of experiences that would help me work with people who were different than I am. Um, and it, it kind of, you know, I, I think that training, my experience before really helped me. Now, it's possible that people right out of school can do it. I don't see that. But, you know, again, maybe if I started over again, I, I, I wouldn't have put in those years. And, right. and who knows? Who knows? Right. Exactly. The past is the past. And now we're yeah. in the present. And here we are. Uh, I'll so tell let's you talk something. about what's happening presently. Um, let's talk about pocket listings. OK, correct me if I'm wrong, but aren't they illegal? Well, they used to be illegal. Okay. <laughs> um, and they used to be illegal. And I was so. <laughs> you know, preparing for talking with you today. I kind of did some reading. And one of the reasons why they um, were or have been illegal is that they, they raise a, a number of um, kind of problems with um, 
um, fair housing violations um, and um, discrimination. Because if you only market a house to the people that you know, the general public doesn't know about it. And you can be very selective in who you market it to. So there, um, I think um, the multiple listing services realized that a really long time ago, that it wasn't fair to the buyer community. It's also not fair to the seller community because it's really easy as a broker to snooker someone into taking an offer that is more beneficial to you as a broker than necessarily to the seller. Um, you know, when our job as listing brokers is to get the best possible deal for the seller, you can't do that very easily when you, you know, handpick who you're going to show it to. Right. So um, that's why it, I don't know that it's illegal in terms of the state doesn't allow it, but I know that multiple listing services um, and some organizations, realtor organizations, find brokers who don't list things publicly. So it's, not a good idea and it's not in the best interest in your clients, but I don't know that it's illegal. Um, and we've gotten, well, let me just sort of back up a little bit. Uh, the reason why they've become popular now um, and people have gotten away with it is thanks to COVID homeowners would say, I don't want a lot of people walking through my house. So as my broker, please don't bring too many people here. Now, that's sort of a stupid thing if you're a seller, but COVID kind of gave, gave people cover for it. And frankly, there have been brokers and agencies for many years that try very hard when they get a listing to keep it in-house, meaning that they want to get both sides of the deal. Right. Um, and, and there's one, one situation where it is in the seller's best interest to keep a listing quiet. And that is if they are... Uh, private for whatever reason, could be celebrities, um, could be that they don't want anyone in their family to know what their house is selling for. And all those pictures going on the internet really does invade your privacy. It's so true. But yeah. you know, on the other side of the coin, though, is at the end of the, uh, the day after the closing, it's public record, even though it could be an LLC. Well, it is public record, but most people don't really know that and they don't know how to find out about it. That's I mean, to this day, I get people who say, would you find out what a house sold for? I said, you know, you just go on Zillow and you can find out. Right. But they don't they don't they don't know that. But, right. you know, so um, uh, it keeps the information away. And also a lot of people think with an LLC they can hide, um, which doesn't really work that well because you can find out where people live. Um, and another thing about why pocket listings have become popular now, um, I think that what Zillow tried to do and other um, public portals have followed is to make home buying much more transparent. And I think for consumers, that's probably very good to a point. If they were at the information was accurate, it would be a whole lot better. Um, but it does get the information out about a listing um, really wide. It gives homeowners a great deal of exposure. And in many ways, it's it's positive, but whenever there's something positive, there's a negative to it. And that, you know, transparency does interfere with a lot of people's privacy. So, now, right now in our market, which is, um, you know, kind of a little special, um, speaking of special, everybody wants to feel special. I, I cannot tell you, um, you probably as well, how many times a buyer has come to you and said, I, I know everything that's on the market. Show me just what you know. Of course. Um, 
because one is they want they think that if they can get to something that nobody else knows about, they can get a good price. Um, they also think that if they are if you show them your own listings, you would be getting two sides of the commission and they could benefit from that by paying you know, less money. Right. Um, but then again, the seller thinks that they can sell it for less money. And if you each of them get a half and you think you're getting a whole, something's not going to add up. <laughs> <laughs> I like that analogy. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> so what is an off-market listing? An off-market listing is um, comes about in a couple of ways. You're at a dinner party and someone says, what do you think my house is worth? <laughs> <laughs> You've been that to those dinner parties. No, no, no. I know the only way to avoid that is not to go to not dinner to go parties. parties. <laughs> um, and if you are a broker, like most of us are these days in need of listings, you will give them a number and you might say, you know, I need to do some homework and I'll call you or you do what I know somebody did recently. I heard about someone told them $30 million dollars. Um, which got that broker pocket listing <laughs> didn't get a deal because that's now on the market for considerably less with another broker. But um, the, it, so you hear that somebody is willing to sell because you had this conversation at dinner and you call one of your customers and say, um, so-and-so is just beginning to think about selling. Um, can I get you in? It's not a listing yet. So you just know about it. Mm -hmm. um, another is somebody coming to you and saying, we're getting divorced. I don't want my wife to know, but I'd like to sell the house. Um, if you can bring me a buyer at X, you can have this listing, but I don't want any ads. I don't want it written anywhere. I don't want any pictures. Um, those are pocket listings. Um, another pocket listing is when somebody actually wants you to list and you don't tell anybody about that and you keep it in your pocket. Right. Um, and that's the seller doesn't know that it's a pocket listing, which is that's really bad. Mm. The other because situation not getting could exposure. be foolish. The sellers are not getting exposure. They're not getting exposure, not being treated honestly. Right. That's so true. So, that's so true. It's a, it's, it's a double naughty. Right. Right. Um, we're getting an influx of coming soon listings. Yes. Yeah. It comes across my desk and I'm sure also yours. Yes. So yeah. There's a particular the coming soon. That's about coming that. soon. <laughs> Yeah, coming in soon is a, um, a, a way that you can convince a seller or sometimes the seller will come to you and want to do it this way. They don't really want to list it. They want to know what it's worth. And if they get such and such price, they'll sell it. But if it doesn't go for that, you know, sort of ambitious or wish for price, then nothing's lost because it's never been a listing. And that's sort of important because one of the negative things about Zillow is that the t the length of time something is on a market has become public information. And I don't know about you, but you probably have had owners say, let's take it off for a while so we can go back to zero. And it doesn't look like it's been on the market for so long. Well, that's really nice, but it doesn't work that way because what's on the internet stays just like, you know, pictures of you at a drunken party or buying, you know, <laughs> Uh, many years, not you, but anyway, <laughs> the proverbial you. Um, it lives, the, yeah, lives on the market for a long time. So the I found one way around that, and I did it once. It didn't actually help, but we got to change the address of a house. Oh, interesting. That's it wasn't easy. that easy to do, but it worked. And then it became, then it went on as a new listing. Hmm. I like that. That's an interesting. Yeah, it's, you know, 
So uh, I th- we're. How do you think the market? And can you do it in fifteen seconds? How, uh, the, how is the market different today as it was six months ago? Um, it's different. Um, I'll tell you a couple of things that are different. One is that the um, real the rental market has a great deal of inventory and not very much demand. We didn't have that then, so that that could look different, um, or it could be the beginning of something different. The other is that the um, this this week last this week this year. We got 20 new listings in ELA. That's our um, listing system yeah, for yeah. listeners. Um, more than we did last year at this time. Yeah. So inventory so can be growing. You, but how can somebody get in touch with you, Diane? Oh, really easy. Diane Sachi at um, dot com um, on this, my website, or you can um, email me at ds at saunders.com. Fantastic. Diane, it's always a pleasure having you on the program. This is John Christopher for Real Life. Broadcasting here in the vibrant village of Southampton, New York, on the only NPR station on Long Island, WLIW 88.3 FM. Thank you for listening, and thank you again for your time, and be sure to have an awesome journey. You have been listening to Real Life. The program that talks about the people, the places, and the things that are the pulse and heartbeat of real estate in the Hamptons and beyond with host John Christopher, who also created the music for real life. WLIWFM's Delaney Hafner and Kyle Lynch provide production support. Thank you for joining us for Real Life right here on listener-supported 88.3 WLIWFM Long Island's only NPR station, which you can also find on your favorite streaming apps and at wliw.org radio.